Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews as we continue in this great epistle this morning. Hebrews chapter 1. Now, we've already embarked on a journey. We've already started the journey. According to Hebrews, we cannot return. Once you discover the truth of the supremacy of the Son, you cannot turn back. You cannot turn away. But you must forever move forward toward it toward an ever-deepening understanding and a more intimate relationship with your Lord. As always in my prayer, that through this study, if you don't genuinely know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that you will be led to faith and repentance under its message so that you will follow Him and grow in your love for Him all your days all the days of your life. If you do know Him, that you would remain forever worshipful and delightfully amazed at the supremacy of the Son. That you would not defect from a high Christology, which sadly the church and the world has defected. We cannot defect from a high Christology presented to us in the Holy Word of God. We must, according to Hebrews, hold fast to it. Learn more of it. And be faithful to proclaim it. So from last time, here are some Jewish Christians. Hebrews written to Jews. Jewish Christians. And because of their persecutions, because of the difficulties living the Christian life, have you found any difficulties living your Christian life yet? They were really half inclined to throw in the towel and revert back to their former system of Judaism. Religion's easy compared to Christianity. Christianity is a full wholehearted, whole-life commitment to Christ. Christ wants all of you, not, not just some of you. He wants all of you right now. So, in this epistle, they, they, as we, are hit with an undeniable introduction that's very difficult to dismiss. That is, the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, is a God who speaks. God did indeed speak. In content He spoke. He spoke in a certain manner in the Old Testament. So this morning, in our text, I want you to see really two major points with sub-points. The first one is this, that God began speaking. He wanted humankind to know something. He wanted it written down. He wanted it proclaimed. He wanted it to be shouted from the rooftops. He never wanted it to be stuck in a corner or on a shelf somewhere where nobody heard it or nobody opened it. That's what God, God's intention has always been. And yet men have tried to suppress it, put it down, close it, put it away, and forget it. And God says can't happen. You know why? Because God speaks. And I tell you what, if God speaks, He will be heard. He will be heard. Let me pray. Lord, this morning I do ask You, from the Word of God, that you would speak again to us. 
And I pray, Lord, that we would have listening ears to hear so we can respond appropriately and we can give you the glory for it and honor. And we could be thrilled with the sense that you have given us the supreme revelation in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to more fully understand that today. In Christ I pray. Amen. So, God began to speak. Look at verse number 1. It says this, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, in the New American Standard, it says many portions. The first part of it here in the Word of God. Now, that's the first way. God, that's, God spoke in various parts in the Old Testament times. Now, I think of when the word used, is used here as portions, that when you go to a fine restaurant, they don't just give you a hamburger and fries and plop, and plop it in front of you. No. You have your little appetizer. You have your salad. You have your main dish. And then before your dessert, you may cleanse the palate a bit in portions it's given to you to enjoy, to, to kind of like mull over it in your taste buds so you get the full impact of the food. And then, of course, go right to the end where there's a closing and a, and a uh, beverage at the end. So you enjoy, with a long sitting, not fast food, the essence and the taste of the food. It's an experience. And so in a very real, real way, the Lord has spoken in many portions. Not all at once. Genesis chapter 1 and onward, we have hundreds, thousands of years of revelation till this day. Of course, revelation stopped with the coming together of the Old and New Testament. But the Lord spoke in history. The Lord wanted us to know His thoughts. He wanted us to know His plans and His purposes. As Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So if God's given us the Word of God, the mind of God, the thoughts of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God, so what? So His people at every point in history can have hope. And what he was telling them. Who he was pointing to. The Lord also spoke in prophecy. But if you look at prophecy, God gave promises yet fulfilled. He gave judgments yet to come. He gave understanding of the future. And yet showed us that the Messiah would reign in glory and in his, in his, his eternal kingdom. So he's given portions along the way. He's spoken to us. And it was written down. A second thing in verse number 1, it says this. It says that he, was spoke, he spoke also in many ways. Multifaceted ways is really the literal rendering there. That God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. Yes, God did speak Richly, abundantly, in so many different ways as the Hebrew Scriptures record, but only in fragments, not in completeness. God spoke in dreams. He spoke in visions. He spoke in a burning bush to Moses. He spoke in the pillar of fire when the tabernacle was in the wilderness. But His primary vehicle in which he spoke was through the prophets, as it says in verse number 1, to the fathers in the prophets. So there is a line of prophets that spoke in behalf of God and bore testimony to the truth. Men as Moses and Samuel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, right down to the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi. He had the last word on what was going on with the people of God. 
He had the last word from God to the people. And the last word was pretty much, listen, you're going through all the forms and rituals, you're doing everything right, but you have no heart in it. You're hypocrites. And then 400 years of silence, and God raises up John the Baptist, and he speaks through John the Baptist. John the Baptist picks up the message of Malachi and begins to proclaim it to the leadership of Israel. God spoke richly and abundantly, but all of it was incomplete. Yes, he spoke through Moses, and yet promised. If you look back to Acts chapter 7, verse 37, which it quotes from Deuteronomy 18 and verse number 15, he spoke to Moses, that's Acts 7, 37, yet promised to send another prophet, vastly greater than Moses, even though Moses was responsible for the prophecy and of the coming of the prophet like himself. Look what it says in Acts 3, 7, 37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. So Moses wasn't the last word of things. He was actually the beginning of much of what was going to happen. He was the one who spoke and said, listen, there's going to be someone who's going to be great like me, but greater than me. And then notice and look at, look at Acts. Uh, well, from Deuteronomy, this passage of Scripture come, but Deuteronomy adds something on it. In Deuteronomy 18.15, it sounds the same, but listen to what it says. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy. You shall listen to him. So Moses, way back when, said, listen, over here, there's going to be one greater than me. You think it was great for you to come through the Red Sea, for me to lead you through the wilderness, for me to do all these miracles before you uh, as the instrument of God. You think these are great, man in the wilderness, your clothes not wearing out, the pillar of fire to lead us at night, and then the pillar of cloud by day to show the presence of God in the midst of Israel. You think all oh, that was great? That's nothing compared to the one who's coming. But I want to tell you now so you can tell the next generation, so that you, that generation can tell the next generation right up until the day that you must listen to the one who's coming. I'm pointing to him. See, God works according to a consistent and straightforward, unswerving plan. Moses was part of that plan. And God's plan of deliverance and salvation was not just for the people of Israel in bondage. But Moses actually became a picture of the one who would come after him and who would be the greatest of deliverers because the one who would come after him would be a spiritual deliverer. God would provide the ideal ruler to fulfill his promises and the man would be prepared to be the ideal redeemer. Those who heard the prophets heard God. Remember, the prophets never came up with their own message. It was always a message that God gave them and then they delivered. It wasn't something they spun on their own. Matter of fact, the ones who spun it on their own, they were the false teachers. And they were to even, in the Old Testament Israel economy, be put to death for giving falsehoods to the people. See, God spoke. Again and again he spoke in many different ways, but all of them were inferior. It was the Apostle John who told us in John chapter 1 and verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, right? But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. See, in the Word of God, matter of fact, that very verse is on a plaque on Mount Nebo. In stone, it's written there. 
That's only the only verse that's there. That's where Moses, remember, went there. God showed him the promised land, and God took him on Mount Nebo. And that's the verse there. And that is the, that is the verse that Moses was the one pointing to, the one who would be full of grace and truth. See, so God definitely, from the Word of God, has begun to speak from the old, in the Old Testament time. It was written down. And now what do we have? We have God saying here in this passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 1 that He finished His speaking. God spoke, and now He is finished with His speaking. Look what it says in verse number 2. In these last days has spoken to us in His Son. So the Word of God is telling us that God has sent His Son who would go beyond Moses and all the prophets... God now speaks fully and completely in the person of His Son. See, He makes a comparison here in Scripture between a good that was partial and piecemeal and that came little by little throughout the ages in portions to something better that came all at once in the person of His Son. The comparison is between the good and the better. Moses would good, was good, but what I'm sending is better. Moses would, and the prophets were partial, but what I'm sending is definitive. Moses and the prophets and all that is spoken was only again partial. I am sending, sending someone who's final. God finishes His speaking. So Scripture is meant to make clear this morning that God's revelation in His Son was full, it was final and definitive in a way that all previous revelations were not. See, are you still listening to the Son? Are you listening to God's final revelation to mankind? He's done giving us Scripture. He's done giving us signs and types. He's done with that. That was done at a portion of time and now in his son it all comes together now as you might expect also the writer of hebrews whoever he may be doesn't mess around getting to the meat because he gives us seven essential things about the one who is the crowning point of divine revelation Jesus Christ. Let's look at those. I want to give them to you in a package all together because all throughout Hebrews, each one of these is going to be brought up again. So I want you to get a sense of what this writer is saying to the people. That listen, if God spoke and He's finished speaking in the Son, then you have to listen to Him. You know why? Because there's nothing else. If you reject this final revelation, there's no other revelation. There's no other message. There's nowhere else to go. This is it. So you have to listen. And so he gives seven essential things about the Son, about the crowning point of divine revelation. Here's the first thing he says in Hebrews chapter 2, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 2. It says, In these last days he has spoken to the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things the first thing is the son is the inheritor of all things an heir signifies a person who on the on the death of another becomes possessor of the other's property usually the the son gets the property of the father but it's unusual here because it's at the death of the son that he inherits because the son has to die And so here, the way Christ, the Son, came to His inheritance is because it says in our passage of Scripture, He was placed there. He was appointed by the Father to carry it out. There's a couple things about an heir. An heir becomes Lord of all that he inherits. In fact, Galatians says it like this in chapter 4 and verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ 
at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. In other words, in the Galatians, a boy could not inherit. Usually, he had to grow to maturity to inherit his father's property completely. But when he did, he owned it all. He was the Lord of everything. And then secondly, an heir takes full possession of all it inherits. And if you would like to look with me at Psalm 2, 8, uh, because most of the scholars who deal with this passage of Scripture go back to the prophecy that comes out of I mean, Psalm chapter 2, verse number 8, where it says simply this, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations to your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possessions. In other words, it's saying here that Christ, the Son, is the one who is heir of all things, being Lord of every single thing. And then he possesses it completely. Now, I would like to remind you, though, that all those who are true children of God and fellow heirs of Christ, it tells us in Romans chapter 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then what? Heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So we are inheritors of all things with Christ. Could you imagine that? Wrap your brain around that one. See, we are worried about all of our little possessions that we have and the little things that maybe we don't have. But the Bible is saying, listen, if you are in Christ, you own everything and possess everything. Of course, we don't realize that now by sight. We have to obtain that or hold to that by faith. And that's what Hebrews is getting to. That we hold it by faith. Why? Because these are true. This is God's revelation to us. And it is definitely true. That everything's ours. A second thing essential it says about the Son is this. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. It says that not only is he heir of all things. But look what it says at the end of verse 2. Through whom also he made the world. Now, this, this, is, this is getting very interesting. His superiority is seen as the creator of all. Actually, the world, the word translated here, world, it may be a, a bit misleading because you may be just thinking just the earth. But it's actually, the Greek word is eons. That God created the eons that can be translated the universe. Jesus was the agent in whom and through whom the entire universe of space and time were created. Hopefully you're starting to ask yourself, who is this son? Who is this who is the apex of revelation? Who is this person? That at the very creation... When the eons of time began, God made His Son heir of all things, not according to the Son's deity, but according to the Son's humanity. Why? Deity doesn't need anything. But as a son, He inherits it all. In fact, He had to become a son to inherit. God didn't have to inherit everything, anything. But the Son did in the flesh. And so, because He does, we do. So see, God had to send His Son incarnate into the world. So the Son, Jesus, created the 100,000 million galaxies, each containing some 100,000 million stars. And we know now in an ever-expanding universe that Jesus created every speck of dust in the 100,000 million galaxies. And He also created all the sub microscopic systems that have no measurable size or can't even be seen. In other words, Jesus created the heaven and the earth and all 
in them that have their being and have their existence and have their identity and have their function within that system. And outside of that system, there is nothing. This theme is represented all through the Word of God. Like the passage of Scripture in John 1.3, all things, remember, came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Colossians 1.16, for by Him, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. This is amazing to think that Jesus Christ, the Son, is not only the inheritor of all things, but He's the inheritor of all things He created. And we can't forget, brethren, that the one who redeemed us is the one who created us. Our Redeemer and our Creator are one and the same person. But don't miss the point. Because the focus here is not on the comprehension of the divine act of creation, even though we can get lost in that. But the point is the apprehension of the true nature of the Son who is displayed in His full deity in creation. The very power and essence and glory of God is displayed before our eyes day in and day out, even for the things that we we can see with our eyes and even those who put things under under the microscope and see things you can't see with your eyes and say, wow, there's another life past what I can see. And then we gaze into space and we realize God, Christ Jesus made all that too. And He made me. This is all too great and grand to wrap our brains around. And yet that is what it's saying here. The one who created me is one in essence and one in power and one in glory with the Father, Jesus Christ the Son. So He is not only the inheritor and the creator, but thirdly, look at verse number 3 in Hebrews, He is the radiator. It says, and He is the radiance of His glory. Let me stop there. The radiance of His glory. Another word is the infulgence. And in the original there, some try to translate this as a passive, which means that Jesus Christ is the reflection of the Father. But that would be inconsistent with the whole flow of the text. It should be translated as an active. Jesus Christ is the very beam that comes forth from the light source. It's like the sun has its own light. But when we look at the moon glowing, its light source comes from the sun and is reflected. Jesus Christ is not reflected light. Jesus Christ is is the very source of light. He is the infulgent light source of God's brightness in the Word of God. All the Jews knew what this meant. That any time you see that... uh, the radiant glory of God going out, that had to do with the Shekinah glory. That had to do with God's uh, brightness. That had to do with God's unmistakable presence amongst His people. That's why He presented Himself to Moses in the burning bush. Because God was a, a God who was going to present Himself in light. That's why God presented Himself in the pillar of fire to show His glory amongst His people. When Paul got saved, remember what he said? That the, at noon... When God spoke to him, that the light around him was brighter than the noonday sun. Meaning what? He understood it was the glory of God. It was the very brightness of God that was shining around him. And what do people do when that happens? They fall on their face. 
Just try one day staring into the sun when it's a real clear, bright day. It's like you can't do it. You can't stare into the glory of God. It should bring us right to our faces. Now, by way of example, look, turn over to Matthew chapter 17. And look at verse number 1 and 2, the whole uh, chapter there where it talks about God's inherent glory. That means God's glory is not reflected. It's, it's inherent in him. It's inside of him. And so in the New Testament, a good example is found here on the Mount of Transfiguration having to do with Jesus. And if you look at Matthew chapter 17, verse number 1, I think it's 17. It says in verse 17, six days later Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the what? The sun. And his garments became as white as light. What was that all about? That the deity of Christ burst forth from within him, showing forth his glory. Theologians refer to this incident as back to Hebrews, where they, and, or John chapter 14, where it's mentioned, and the word became flesh, remember? and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, most likely referring back to the Mount of Transfiguration. This is where they saw the glory of God, where it, right before him, Christ was transformed. So Jesus Christ is the radiator. He's the very source of God's light. He's not the reflected light. And the second thing, back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 3, it says this about him, that he is the radiance of, the, of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So a fourth thing would be is that the Son is a representer of all things. The exact representation of his nature. Actually, the word here is character. It, it means a, a stamp or of a... a an impression, like a signet ring kings used to, to wear where they leave the impression of their uh, logo right in the wax and it would be the exact replica. It would be the exact thing, the exact image on the wax as on the ring or on a coin that is uh, minted where we see that the, the coin is the exact representation as the die in which it was stamped from jesus is therefore completely the same in his being as the father when you see the son you see the father and yet jesus is also distinct and i believe that this this passage of scripture gives us that distinction he is the source of light and he is the exact representation of the father yet There is a distinction. Jesus being the second person of the Trinity. He is not the Father. He is different in person, but the same in essence in being. This is problematic for anyone to wrap their mind around the whole concept of three in one. It was in John chapter 14 where... Jesus was dealing with Philip, and the conversation went like this in uh, John chapter 14. If you have known me, Jesus says, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And then Philip says this to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And then Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? And Jesus says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. There is a connectedness between the Son and the Father that is, again, 
taught in the Word of God and tells us that Jesus Christ is not only God, but He is given this mission to be man. So you see the Son bear the exact likeness of God's nature, the divine image, and the nature of God has been stamped onto the Son. You cannot, uh, you cannot go through the Gospels and miss that. Where Jesus goes, things happen. People get healed. Demons get cast out. All kinds of things go on when Jesus shows up. See, so when you look in Scripture, when you see Jesus, well, we know what the God of the universe is like. When you see Jesus, you know somewhat of how God thinks. When you see Jesus, you know how He talks. How he relates to people. See, we know what his will is as prescribed in the word of God. See, God has spoken in his son. There's no one like him. There's no other way to be saved. You see who he is? See how you can't get around this introduction? Here's a fifth thing, a fifth essential thing in verse 3. It says at the end of verse number 3, well, in the middle of verse number 3, he up he upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus did not create and then let his creation continue on its own like many philosophers have concluded. No, but he upholds it all, it tells us. He, he bears it. He carries it. Jesus actively exerts his divine power every single day in the conservation of creation by keeping it from sinking back into its original state of confusion and nothingness as you find in Genesis chapter 1. You realize that? He not only created, he holds it together. He is actively, and believe me, if you and I, here's the conclusion, if you and I are still here, and the world's still here, he's still holding it together. So God is actively right now, in your life and in my life, actively in keeping things where they ought to be. Over in Hebrews chapter 11, he's going to come up with this, and he says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And then you come to the Gospels again, and what happens? Jesus is dealing with his disciples, and he's doing all these kind of things. And remember, they're in the boat with Jesus in Luke chapter 8, and the winds are surging, and the waves are coming over the boat, and they're getting scared to death. They come over to Jesus and say, Lord, don't you care about that? We're, we're going to perish. And what does Jesus do? He gets up, and he stops the wind and the waves right in the middle of a violent storm. And what happened to the disciples? Jesus said to them, where's your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, here's their question, who then is this that commands even the wind and the water and they obey him? Who is this? He's more than a man. He's more than a prophet. That's what they're concluding in their minds. Exactly what God designed. They're concluding that He is God. And He has full authority over and keeps everything from falling apart. That's why pretty much in the end, when the Lord says, okay, I'm not holding you together anymore, it's going to all fall apart. That's why at the judgment, the heaven and earth pass away. God says, Jesus says you're done. And we know that Jesus, too, is given authority to judge. So he, the Son, is the sustainer of all things. He is the sustainer. A sixth thing, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 3, the Son is the Savior of 
of all the redeemed. Look what he says, how he says it at the end of verse number three. When he had made purification of sin. You see where he's heading with this? The purging of sin belongs only to the priest. That Jesus is the superior high priest. He not only offers the last sacrifice and the final sacrifice, but apart from the Old Testament priest, he is the sacrifice. Which makes him completely different than the Old Testament priesthood. See, this is where the fullness of the divine character is displayed in his dying love. It was John who said, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He has exegeted Him. Where does He exegete God the most? On the cross. That God's attributes were exhibited in creation and in God's providential workings all along, but in the work of redemption. And in that alone, His full excellence appears. Nothing, nothing could have obliterated the abominable mountain of sin that we've committed and cleansed the indelible stain of sin that has been left on the mark of our guilty souls. Therefore, God thought it best and most for His glory to ordain the mediatorial work of His incarnate Son so that He would take away the sins of His people. Accordingly, by the sacrifice of Jesus, by the sacrifice of Jesus, this great mountain of our sins was removed and cast into the depth of the sea and this indelible stain on our consciences, on our souls, was washed as white as snow by His shed blood on the cross. Only in Christ are His perfections fully realized. As the text says, He had made purification of our sins. He has cleansed us completely before the Father, before God's justice and righteousness. Do you, you see what he's getting at in his argument is that you cannot get away from Jesus. Not when you see him like this. I am responsible to him as creator. I am responsible, responsible to him as sustainer. I am responsible to him as someone who represents God. I am responsible to him in every facet here as the Savior, the one who redeems me, that without his redemption, there is no redemption, there is no salvation. That's the the great point he makes. And there's one last thing in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that the Son is the finisher of all things. If God said, this is my final revelation to you, then this final revelation finishes and seals up all revelation. And look what it says in verse number 3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now this whole visual thing of sitting down really has to do with Work accomplished, work finished, and it, it assumes his position of authority too. It was, it was in the beginning of Acts where it said in Acts, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And then look over to Hebrews chapter 12 the, for a minute. Hebrews 12, look at verse number 2. Again, he brings up, you're going to see this come up often in Hebrews. He says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And then notice what it says, 
despising the shame, and has sat down at his right hand of the throne of God. Has, he's sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is finished. But it says also in Hebrews, the majesty on high, that's the attribute of one who is a king, one who is mighty, one who has majesty, one who has honor, one who is God. That's why, again, in Acts it says, therefore, having been exalted to his right, the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear, for it was not David who sent it into heaven, but he said, he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The right hand of authority. The rightful place of Christ. No one else has done that. No one else has finished like Christ has finished. So Jesus has been displayed in this segment of Scripture as the apex of divine revelation in which Jesus fulfills the office of prophet, of priest, and of king and is the finisher of all God has spoken. Therefore, the incarnate Son is the superior revelation of God that God has spoken in His Son. It is His ultimate communication to humanity. It is His final word to humanity, it shows the superiority of the Son. Now, why all that? I will not get to it this morning, but look at chapter 2 of Hebrews in verse number 3. Here's the question. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's the warning at the end of the introduction. If you, if you ignore, if you deny, if you neglect God's highest and final revelation, how will you escape? How will you do it? Of course, the answer to this rhetorical question is very clear. You will not escape. But you will forever be under God's righteous wrath. Why? Because God began speaking in many portions in many different ways, and he finished speaking in Christ. The book is closed. The message is complete. Now respond to it. It also should bring to us as Christians a very seriousness about our Christian walk. We shouldn't take sin lightly and think we can have sin and have God too. Like, it's no big deal. That God's going to forgive. I'm going to presume that God's going to forgive. I, I commit the sin. God will forgive me because he's a forgiving God. No, God is serious about sin. He's serious about punishment. He's serious about those things. He will bring them to pass. So see, do you hear him? Are you listening? Are you believing and following him? That would be just some of the conclusions this morning to this message. Are you? And if you're not, please, please, today is the day that you need to make yourself right before God. And come in repentance and faith and believe in God's final revelation and what he has accomplished on behalf of sinners. And if you are, please be serious about your Christian walk and life. Don't neglect it and set it aside. As if it doesn't need nurturing and constant pruning. It needs that all the time so we'll grow and expand. That's why we get to Hebrews chapter 5 and he's rebuking them for what? Not being teachers. Why? Because they haven't been growing. Something shut them down. 
we have to be warned of the same thing. So, in one way, it's a grand and glorious message to begin to think about Christ like this. is a whole new way of thinking. I can't bring him down just to be a carpenter or a good teacher or someone who had just a good ethical and moral story. There's no way. I, if, I, if I conclude that, you might as well take this portion of Hebrews, cut it out, make it... Make a Bible like Jefferson made. What he didn't like, he cut out. But see, we can't do that. We can't discard this introduction. This applies to all mankind. And if you are believers and are walking with the Lord, what a privilege to know this. What a privilege to hear it. What a gift of God to allow these things to come into our ears, to seep into our mind, and to begin to reorganize the computer so we look at things the way God wants us to that is going to be liberating and free and in a way that honors God even in our very imagination, in our very thoughts, in our very doing of life. It's a privilege to be able to know this about Christ. See, do you see you can't go back? You see you can't go the other, you can't go back the other way. You gotta go forward. He who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. So keep looking forward and keep pressing on. Keep having your eyes fixed on the one who's the finisher and what? Author of your faith. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this portion of Scripture. It is awesome to think upon you in the way the Scriptures has, have revealed you, Lord. For it keeps us from the perverted interpretations of many scholars, and many schools, and many liberals. Lord, don't let us go there. And I pray, Lord, in our Christian walk, we would always continue to press on toward the high calling of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I ask you, Lord, to work in your word. Work it into our hearts. Work it into our minds. Work it into our souls until we understand, Lord. Until we see what you want us to see. Until we hear what you want us to hear. Until we do what you want us to do. Lord, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you, Lord, for ever speaking to us. Thank you, Lord, so much that we're even able to hear it. We give you praise and we give you honor and we give you glory because you are exalted and you are seated at the right hand of God the Father in majestic glory. Thank you, Lord, for so great a salvation. Wow. If you'd done this, No one could take it from us. Thank you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this morning...